Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. There are not many famous people in the world with my surname. In fact, uh, I struggle to find many. There is like, I think there was an all black who played for New Zealand, uh, also called Mark Sayers. Uh, I once went to a restaurant in Perth called Sayers and walked in and the owner was called Mark Sayers and uh, his son said, son, meet Mark Sayers and the son looked completely confused. But probably the most famous Sayers uh, that I know of is an English writer called Dorothy L. Sayers. She lived at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, she was a quite an amazing woman uh, who lived in Oxford and she invented a genre of writing. Now, many people may know that the sort of, I guess the real font of so much fantasy novels that were written by a group uh, of men who congregated in Oxford called the Inklings. Uh, In this group were people like C.S. Lewis and of course he wrote the Narnia books And of course, there's J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the whole Lord of the Rings series. And Dorothy L. Sayers was sort of on the edge of this group. And in many ways, she popularized a very different kind of genre that is everywhere today. We must take it for granted. It's not only in books, it's continually on TV. And this was just after World War I. And there was a real sense of despondency amongst many people. The world had gone through World War I and then the Spanish flu, it had gone through the Great Depression and there was a deep sense of hopelessness. The hopes and dreams, the deeper mysteries seems to have been completely destroyed and there was just this this depression in many ways that had come over the population. And so what Dorothy L. Sayers did was, instead of preaching sermons, She decided to express her faith through a particular kind of genre of writing, the detective novel. And she created this this society, and it was called the Detection Society. The first chairman was G.K. Chesterton, the famous writer who then started the Father Brown series, if you've ever seen that series, which was about a Catholic priest who solved mysteries. And Dorothy Sayers was also part of this group. And a young woman would join this group and be very shaped by it. Her name was Agatha Christie. And the whole idea behind this idea of writing detective novels was to show that there's actually deeper things going on beneath the surface. To actually not just look at the world as you experience it, but to actually scratch beneath the surface and that there were mysteries still to be found in the world. And then actually injustices would be undone in the end. And so many of the things that we're used to, whether you're reading an Agatha Christie novel or listening to a true crime podcast or watching a TV series about mysteries being solved, is many of these ideas we can trace back to Dorothy Sayers and something that she was teaching us. And I just want to give a quote from Dorothy Sayers' friend, C.S. Lewis, who gave the eulogy at her funeral. And C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise. And you can see here the influence of Sayers' thought on 
C.S. Lewis, that there are these mysteries. He's explaining this in a way that makes people look at the Christmas story differently. The Christmas story is the story of Jesus landing, but in almost a disguise. Now, if you've seen any detective story, read a detective story, you know often the person who ends up being the suspect is the one you least expect to be the suspect. Scooby-Doo reveals that at the end. Every, I watched Scooby-Doo as a kid, and the end of every single Scooby-Doo episode, they ripped the mask off the person who you least expected, and it was someone completely different under that mask. And no matter how many times you saw this, you still loved that moment when finally the truth was revealed and the mask came off. And what I want to do today is I want us to look at the Christmas story, and instead of the usual suspects that we examine for deeper meaning, the Magi, the shepherds, King Herod, all these different people that we focus on. I want to focus not on a person, but at a central player that appears in Luke verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, where it basically says that Mary wrapped Jesus in cloth and placed him in a manger. I want to look at the manger. And I want to actually argue this morning that there is more going on with the manger. The manger is a suspect that you may look at right off, but there's a lot more going on with the manger. So let's look deeper. Let's begin with a clue. And let's not go to the obvious places of Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel where there's all the elements of the nativity story that we're used to, shepherds and and. I don't know, sheep baying, that doesn't really happen in the Gospels, but all those mental images that we have of the nativity. And let's actually turn to John's Gospel. John's Gospel has an account of the nativity, but it's explained in a very different way. It doesn't have all the trappings of the story. It says in John 1, verse 14, the following. I think we've got it up there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. In these few short words, John captures the true meaning of the Christmas story. And the manger is a key part of this. So what I want to say is that in many ways, like the Scooby-Doo mystery, where the end of the story, the mask is ripped off, I want to rip the mask off the manger and say the manger is not what you think it is. What's a manger? Often when you see a manger in a nativity play, you'll see a little sort of rickety wooden construction. Normally there's a couple of legs propping it up, a few sort of like charmingly, rustically nailed together, bits of wood with some hay in there, and then you have a baby place. Now the idea behind this kind of manger really can be traced back to Renaissance paintings where that was their sort of stylized, idealized version of what a manger would look at, look like. But this is not what a manger would have looked like. What is a manger? It's not a bed for children that's made out of wood that you would buy from, I don't know, Bethlehem, Ikea back in the day. Actually, what a manger was, was a feeding trough for animals. And the archaeological similarities that we could find from dwellings at that time point to the fact that most likely what it was was a stone rectangular box without a top on it 
that food would be poured into and the animals, big heavy cattle often would come around and feed from. So these things needed to be pretty resilient. And there's not been a large amount of sort of, I don't know, technological change to this day in mangers, that feeding troughs were boxes made of stone. Now, this points to a kind of theme that we see through the scriptures. Now, I want to rip the Scooby-Doo mask off early and reveal what a manger really is, and then I'm going to explain how we got there. So... Ripping off the Scooby-Doo mask, a manger is actually, when we look at the different biblical emphases, an ark. The manger is an ark, Scooby-Doo. Well, what's an ark? We can think of an ark as a gift, a rectangular box-like vessel which contains something very important. In the scriptures, there are two Hebrew words which point to an ark, which are translated from the English, uh, oh, sorry, in, into English as ark. The first one is Tabar, which refers to the ark of Noah and Moses. And then there is Aaron, which refers to the ark of the covenants. And to summarize these meanings down, what an ark is, an ark is a vessel through which God's will and way is delivered into the world. Let's look at the first one briefly. Tabar. The word Tabar first appears when we hear about the ark of Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 14, it says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. The world has been overtaken by sin and corruption and injustice, and the world is then subsumed in a great flood. In the scriptures, water and chaos and sin are all interlinked. And bobbing on that great sea, there is this vessel carrying God's purposes for what he's going to do next. It's a vessel which when it hits Mount Ararat becomes a container, a cedar of new creation. It's protected from chaos by its structure, but it contains redemption inside of it. A new potential, not just for humans, but also for all of the animals and creatures held within. And if you look at this image of this special environment in an unformed world, inside which are man and woman, all the different animals, it also points back to another story that comes earlier, a moment of new creation, the story of Eden. Eden this special place in the world, which says man and woman, all the different animals, God's presence is there. This is the starting point of God into the world. And this hints back that Eden also was a kind of an ark. The other famous Tabar kind of ark in the Old Testament is found in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, where hinting and pointing back like a sample in a song back to the story of Noah's ark Exodus 25 verse 20 oh sorry wrong one Exodus 2 verse 3 says this speaking of Moses's mother but when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch and she placed the child in it and put it amongst the reeds along the bank of the Nile Again, we have the same themes coming up. There's water, and it's in the Nile, 
But also this is a time when Pharaoh in Egypt is, is doing terrible things. He's exterminating the, the, the young of the Hebrews. But God chooses this vessel, which is going to be a, a container of his redemption, which creates a new way forward. God guides Moses, little baby, fragile, the seed of a new beginning in this container that floats on the water until it's delivered by the side of the bank and new beginnings begin through the life and ministry of Moses. Let's now look at the other word that's translated into ark, Aaron. This comes to us in Exodus 25, verse 21, where the tablets, the word of God, the Torah has been given to Moses, who's now lived his life as an agent of God's mission in the world, his redemptive plan. And this is given, and the Hebrew people take this. And it says in, in Exodus 25, verse 21, God commands the people, place the cover on top of the ark. What is the ark? The ark is a rectangular box. And put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. This ark doesn't contain a baby. It doesn't contain animals and people. But it actually contains the living word of God. And we see then it's moving around, just as Noah's ark moved around this sea of chaos, just as Moses in his little baby ark actually went through the rivers of the Nile, which was seen as a spiritual force by the Egyptians. Now the ark actually contains the very word of God, that which will bring life to the people. And it moves around a time where the world is filled with sin and brokenness. And when that word sometimes is spoken, when that word, in a sense, jumps out of that ark and the word is read and the Torah is read, it brings renewal, it brings new creation to the people, it promotes God's way. The ark then becomes this meeting place, this box, this vessel, this container, this meeting place between heaven and earth, humanity and God. Yeah, because it's so holy containing the very word of God, it's only approachable once a year by a designated priest who, who must go through this ritual purification before he can enter it to make amends. It's mediated through these different borders and veils. It's deliberately kept distant. But then we read again what we saw in Luke. Mary gives birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The manger, this humble stone rectangular trough, echoes biblical parallels to the ark. It symbolizes, despite its very earthy and ordinary exterior, what it actually is, is a sacred vessel where the very Messiah is placed, where the presence of God has come close. Now we begin to understand with greater meaning what John is getting at when he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came for the Father, full of grace and truth. The manger is an ark. It carries the living word, Jesus. In the Christmas story, the word becomes flesh as Jesus is placed in the manger. 
And this points to the coming into the world of Jesus, the Word, into the chaotic, sinful, broken world, reversing the normal direction of approach. What do I mean by this? If you think about the ark in the tabernacle or the temple, it was right up the back. It had to be distant because it was holy. But what John is saying is when he's saying the word became flesh, it's almost like the top of the ark is opened and out of the ark, the living Torah begins to walk towards us, the word of God and actually takes on human flesh and it brings new creation. It creates a new world. And it comes not in the way that it had come before. The ark as manger reminds us that Jesus comes in humility. Jesus is approachable, but there's one veil left. The veil is the veil of humility. For Jesus comes with truth and grace, wrapped in the humility of swaddling cloths. And we see people come to this manger, the wise men, the magi who come from the east, looking for the king of the Jews who has been born. They come, but coming to this very simple and rustic and rural place. These are people who are very comfortable in the palace of Herod. But these very powerful, important, smart men come to this manger as an ark and they bow down with worship and with humility. The shepherds who see the heavenly host announce the coming of Jesus in the skies also come to this manger and approach with great humility, worshiping. It's a transformative moment. The word has become flesh and comes close to us. And I think this helps us understand the manger. The manger is a gift. And if you think about the image of a gift, I'm just, I think we've got a picture up there. What is the gift? The gift is a vessel, it's a container. We wrap it and we give it to other people at Christmas as a gift. It's a kind of mystery tied up to be revealed on Christmas morning. And I think this is a brilliant analogy for what the scriptures are getting to, that actually the manger is God's gift to you that Jesus the Word wants to come close. And the good news of the Christmas story is that those who are humble of heart, who bow a knee before Jesus, those who are hurting and those who are broken, those who perhaps feel the world has been flattened, just as when Dorothy Sayers was writing in the 1930s, there was a lot of darkness in the world and a lot of lack of hope, that into the world, Every Christmas, we remember the coming of Jesus as a gift. W.H. Auden, the famous poet, wrote a poem about Christian, uh, sorry, about Christmas. And in this poem, he says that the wise men, upon finding Jesus, say this, Oh, here and now our endless journey stops. You may be that person today. You may have been brought along. And when Jesus comes as a gift, the manger is an ark and the word of God comes close to you and says that God loves you. God has good things for you. God wants to invite you to step over a threshold moment into new creation, the journey where you've searched 
for God in so many places and spaces, often without realizing, is that that journey is over. And that's what Auden celebrates at that moment. Auden's shepherds say something different. The Magi, upon finding Jesus, say our, our journey has come to an end, but Auden's shepherds say this, oh, here our endless journey starts. And so once we find Jesus, the endless journey begins of finding him in new and deeper ways. So whether you meet him for the first time, whether you meet him again, the journey of the unwrapping of the mystery of Jesus continues and the word becomes flesh, the gift of Christmas becomes real and Jesus comes close. God, we know for many of us from this point, Christmas can get very busy. Maybe it's been busy this week, Father, wherever people have come from. We know, Jesus, that in the midst of this season, there can be so many distractions and so many things to do that we can actually forget. We have so many things, we can receive so many gifts. But I just want to pray, Jesus, that in the midst of this, that the gift that you bring, of the word made flesh, of you coming close, that throughout history, there's been these vessels, these arcs, these containers bringing your new beginnings, your new creation coming towards us. And so Jesus, I just wanna pray that in the midst of us that we can see that the true gift of this season is you. God, as we come to the end of the year, I pray that in this room there are people who find you for the first time and that that journey where they've been searching and seeking endlessly ends because they find in you that their hearts can find rest. For those who know you, I pray, Father, that as we move towards Christmas and into 2024, that we begin to discover new things about you, go deeper in you, that your presence and your power becomes more palpable in our lives, we ask and pray. We thank you for coming close. We praise you for not staying distant. And we pray that you may become more into our focus in everything that we do in the next year. In your name, amen.